began this series several weeks ago when we went to a passage that may or may not be familiar to you before then, but hopefully it is now in Ephesians chapter 4, where we talked about and began a study on the power of one. And we discussed as we begin this study a foundation that is to be laid in Ephesians 1, uh, actually Ephesians 5, <laughs> 4, 1 through 3, the foundation that's laid. Yeah, you think you've had a hard morning already. It's been tough, hasn't it? All the distractions and all that kind of stuff and trying to get here. But uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we laid a foundation for this unity, for the oneness that is there in Christ as described through the Spirit of God, through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul. Then we began to talk about what oneness is, how it is defined, what are the characteristics of oneness, and the fact that we are to be one with Christ, we are to be one with each other, and the fact that he tells us as a church that we are to be unified as one body, one spirit, with one hope, and today we're going to talk about the subject of one Lord, one Lord. It's an important subject. As you see just below the, the, the title there, it says, One Lord, Jesus Christ reigns and rules over all. That is, in fact, what he is and who he is. He is Lord over all. He reigns and he rules over all. It is a, a fact. It is a reality. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today as we go to the many different passages of Scripture throughout the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, in which Jesus Christ is described and defined as Lord. And we're going to take a look at what that means to make Christ the Lord of our lives. But before we start, let's talk about and let's talk about and think about this sort of question. How did you get here this morning? How did you get here, guys? Children, we got the children here today, so we're going to sort of have it a little bit lighter than normal. So how do we get here today, children? Did you walk, take a bus, airplane? How? How? You walked? That's somebody that walked. Who drove in a car? All right? You drove in a car. All right, how many driver's seats are in a car? One. Now, there are many drivers in the car, <laughs> but there's only one driver's seat. How many steering wheels are there in a car? One. Why is that? Thankfully, the manufacturer knew better, and they knew human nature, and they knew to only put one driver's seat and one steering wheel in a car. Why is that? I don't have to tell you why that is. There's a lot of people. You know, nothing worse than a backseat driver, right? They only have one driver's seat and one steering wheel. The manufacturer designed a car to only have one driver. Uh, let me sort of put it to you this way. Our manufacturer, God, meant for us to only have one driver in our lives. And his name is Jesus there is only one driver's seat, there is only one steering wheel, there's only one person that has been designed by God once we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus to guide, to steer, to direct, and to lead our lives, and his name is Jesus. He is the sole driver who sits in that assigned position simply because of who he is, assigned by the Father, the Son of the God, who has been designed, who has been designated as the driver of your life once you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I know it's Christmas time, and some of you say, well, how does that relate to Christmas? How does the subject of making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, the single sole driver of my life, how does that relate to Christmas? Well, I want you to take a look at a passage that often is quoted during this particular time of the year. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. 
And it's a passage that's often talked about and quoted and discussed and studied during the Christmas season because it is through the penmanship of Isaiah, led of the Holy Spirit, a time in which he prophesies about this child that is born in a manger over 2,000 years ago whom we call Jesus. And in this passage, he says, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace of the increase of his government and of the peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It describes this baby that was born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem, describes this child that was born as a king, as a messenger, as the Messiah who has been sent by God to establish a kingdom, a government, in which he is the sole reigning, ruling authority over those that belong to him. He is the sole Lord over his kingdom. And he alone occupies that place simply because of who he is and his assignment by the Father. So how does this relate to us? It relates to us in a huge way because the baby that we're, we're celebrating, the, this incredible birthday when we celebrate in just a couple of days, is the birth of not only a baby... But not just any baby, not only the Messiah, but think of him as a Lord. A Lord who has been sent and who lives and who will die only to be raised from the dead so that he can then be Lord of your life, having placed your faith and trust in him as your Savior. He came not just to be our Savior, but he came to be Lord over all in every aspect of your life. And unless he is the Lord of your life in every aspect, then he is not occupying the place that is rightfully his. So I want us to go to, the, to the, all of the text, and not all of them, but a few of them in Ephesians, in this whole letter, and let's sort of do a systematic study of every place where Christ is called Lord in this beautiful letter to the church in Ephesus. And it is here that we learn that if we hope to make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, if that is our desire and that is the design of the Father, to make him Lord of our lives, how do we make that a reality? How does that become possible? Well, take a look at the text. If you see, first of all, for Jesus Christ to be Lord over my life, I must first lift Christ to his rightful position. I must lift Christ to his rightful position. What position is that? If you take a look at the text in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, you will see that he is described as one Lord, one Lord, one Lord. Let's look at the word one. That is an exclusive word. There's an exclusivity here that qualifies and quantifies Jesus Christ as being the sole Lord overall. He shares that position with no one. He will not allow anyone else to occupy that position for him or to take it from him. He is designed to be Lord. He is Lord over all. He is one sole supreme authority over all, one Lord, not only over his church. And I know this letter is written to the church at Ephesus to describe and to define Jesus Christ as being Lord over the church. 
But if he is to be Lord of the church, he is to be Lord over the individuals who belong to that body, who belong to that fellowship, and who belong to that church. He is Lord over our individual lives. And by being Lord over our individual lives, he then becomes the one sole supreme authority over his church. So he's to be the Lord of our individual lives. The one sole authority in our lives. One Lord. Take a look at the text that's there in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to read through them real quickly and make a couple of points. Notice Ephesians 1, verse 2. Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and notice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Ephesians 3, 11 through 12, he said this was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in, notice, Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, in Ephesians 6, verse 23, it says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How is Christ defined and described in the book of Ephesians? He is defined and described as the Lord. What is he saying? And what is the significance of this to this letter to the church at Ephesus and to us today? He is saying that, that, that Jesus is co-equal with God. He's saying that this baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem is none other than divine. He is deity. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. He shares with God a deity. He is the son of God. And he shares by that very nature, the full and complete nature, which is a divine nature of the father. Jesus Christ is God and God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are one God. One God. Well, you say, well, this baby wrapped in swan and clothes, placed in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem, how could he be God? Well, the Bible tells us that he was preexistent. He's existed in heaven before he was born of the virgin named Mary. He had a place, a dwelling place in which he occupied. He was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He reigned and he ruled with God in heaven as the Son of God. And at a defined moment in time, God sent him to be placed into the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was a supernatural in vitro fertilization. That was not the beginning of his life when he was conceived in Mary's womb. He already preexisted in heaven. And don't ask me how it happened. It was a miraculous thing where someone who preexisted in heaven, a divine being, became then a conception in someone's womb named Mary, a virgin who was betrothed to Joseph. And Jesus, the Son of God, was placed miraculously in her womb, and he developed for nine months like you and I do, and he was birthed naturally like you and I are birthed, and so that made him fully God and fully man. So he was Lord not only in heaven, preexistent, but he came now to this life to walk this life and to live this life and to give an example of this life for us. He came, and as he walked and lived here on earth, he lived as Lord, for there was no one that was over him when he was here. By evidence of the times in which he encountered the demons and all of the diseases and all the things that he did, he reigned supreme Lord while he was here on this planet. He did die. He willingly gave up his life and died on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. And upon his death, he was raised from the dead to be what? To be returned back to the place that he occupied before he came to be born of a virgin, that place at the right hand of the Father, where now, right now, he reigns as Lord. One day the trumpet of God will blow and Christ will return. And he will sit on a throne in Jerusalem and he will reign and he rule over all of the earth as Lord for a thousand years. 
And at the end of that thousand years, there will be a battle that will end all battles. And Christ will take those of us who belong to him to heaven with him. And he in heaven with the Father will again reign as Lord in heaven. He has always been and will always be the Lord of his church and of his people. He is the reigning, the eternal ruler of our lives. If you take a look at the text, you see some beautiful descriptions of some beautiful qualities and some benefits of this beautiful encounter and relationship we have with Jesus, the word grace and peace and love and faith. And if you take a look at these texts that we've read, you'll see that, that God is not only the author of these things, but Jesus also shares as the author of these things. And so everything that God gives us, Christ gives us. They share equally, co-equally, they share in this miraculous giving of these beautiful blessings to all of us. Sure, they come from the Father, but they also come from the Son. And so therefore, these are not separate or distinct sources of authority. They are one authority. You follow me? They are one authority. So when you talk about God the Father and God the Son, and let's add in God the Spirit, they are one God, and they co-equally share one authority. So not only is God to be Lord of our lives, by making God Lord of our lives, we make Christ Lord of our lives, and we then also make the Spirit also the Lord of our lives. And so it's one Lord in our lives. Let's take a look at the beautiful passage of the virgin named Mary. It is a couple of days from Christmas, isn't it? And uh, Mary was not sure what she was doing. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. You can imagine anything possible. Uh, maybe she was out washing clothes uh, by the creek bed. Maybe she was taking a stroll in the park, just spending some time alone with God. Uh, maybe she was just doing some sort of personal thing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, an angel, Gabriel, shows up. And he speaks to her. And what he says frightens her. And she says, I'm afraid. And he says, don't be afraid, Mary. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It will be for all the people. For you're going to conceive. And this conception is going to be supernatural. You're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And what is conceived in you will be that of the Holy Spirit. And you will birth a child and you will name that child Jesus. And notice where the scripture takes up on the screen. And then Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Notice, notice Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the what does it say? Of the Lord. I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What is she doing? She is submitting to the Lordship. A supreme being, the divine will of God over her life. You see, I think if we are to follow the example of Mary and we are to make Jesus Christ the one single sole authority in our lives, it takes a willingness on our part, like Mary's, to embrace the will of God and to surrender and submit to it. We're going to see that several times in the Christmas story this morning. 
Mary was willing to lift up the rightful claim that God had in her life and submitted to him. You know what? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have no more rights to your life. You've died to your rights. Now, I know we are Americans, and I know we like to claim that we have rights. And our Constitution declares and demands that we, as citizens of the United States of America, have rights. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we die to our rights. And now he now has the right to invade, to interrupt our lives at any time and demand of us unquestioned obedience. That is his right. That is his claim on your life as a follower of Christ. So anytime he comes and he knocks on the door of your heart and he invades and interrupts your life, and he asks or demands, he has the right to demand. My, my dad used to get really mad at my mom all the time because my mom would always have this way of asking us to do things rather than telling us to do things. And he would say, honey, you don't have to, you don't have to ask him to do anything. You can tell him. You're, you're the parent. Tell him. And she would always ask. And uh, that didn't mean we obeyed it any more than she demanded it when I was a kid, but she always asked. You know, God has a right to demand. But when he comes, he asks. That should be enough for us as we follow the example of Mary and lift up the rightful claim that Christ has in our lives. Why? Because he is Lord. And if he's Lord, that our reply should always be yes. So we must lift up Christ to his rightful place. Secondly, we must offer then a consistent life. We must offer a consistent life. L stands for lift, O stands for offer. There's, a, there's an offering that we make, and the offering is in the words, one Lord. We saw the word one, let's look at the word Lord. The word Lord is kurios, and that simply means is in an adjective here, but this, 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 this means supreme authority. It means that he is the supreme authority. It means that he is the master. It means that he is the controller. It means that, that he is the one who governs our lives. And the sad reality is that there are many people today that I find it interesting that they say a very simple prayer in which they pray to accept Jesus as their Savior. And they may, after that, then commit to make Christ the leader or the Lord of their lives. And that many times, simply because I speak that, does that necessarily make it a reality? If I trust Christ as my Savior and commit to him the leadership of the Lordship of my life, how hard is it for me to going to be to walk from that commitment into the new life that I've been born into by the Spirit of the Lord to make that a reality? How hard is that going to be? Is it easy? Living in the world that we live in? The reality is with all the distractions and with all of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the forces of evil and all of the, the, the inner struggles that we have, as Paul had, that which I want to do, I don't do, and the very thing that I wanna do, don't want to do, I do, woe is me. You know, we have so many elements that are fighting and warring against us as we, as we make that final commitment to place our faith and trust in Jesus and to commit to him the leadership and the lordship of our lives. 
And there are many who simply say a simple prayer and they walk out from that commitment, never making that commitment a reality. Why? Because they fail to understand that it's a day-by-day commitment. It's a day-by-day decision in which I must every single day when I wake up make a commitment, a decision to be consistent in my commitment to Christ to make him the Lord of my life. I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm a sinner. Did you know that? You didn't know that? You knew that? Some of you are shaking your head and we knew that. So are you. I have a carnal nature. I have a flesh that I struggle with. I have a world that has fallen that I live in as well, that's constantly bombarding against me as he is you. An enemy who's out there to seek and destroy whomever he can devour, and if he can devour us, he will. So living a consistent life where I'm making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life It's hard to live in that consistency, isn't it? Isn't it? Have you mastered that? Anybody mastered that yet? I mean, look around. Anybody say, you know, I've arrived. I'm consistently making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life in every area of my life, every single moment of my life. Anybody here want to testify and stand up? We're all going to duck because lightning's about to hit. And yet there is a consistency that I think that we can progress in the likeness of Christ, and that can be ultimately a reality as we grow in him. Notice what the passage says in Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. The apostle Paul, who had spent some time with the Ephesus church, is now at a distance from them, and he is hearing a report. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've heard of your faith in the Lord. And some of us might conclude that this is a faith that he has heard about in their saving faith. And while that is, I think, a possibility, it's much deeper than that. It goes beyond saving faith. It is a faith that not only is saving faith, but is a saving faith that moves into a reality of consistency day by day living under the lordship of Christ. He had heard about how they were consistently making progress in living out the lordship of Christ in their lives. In other words, there is spiritual movement. They were being molded and shaped in the likeness of Christ as they were yielding to the lordship of Jesus in their lives. Notice it says in the text in Ephesians 2, 19, well, let's skip down to 20b, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, notice it says, grows into the holy temple in the Lord. We saw this last time. The word grows is a word that is a a continual nature. It is of a continual process. It is an ongoing growth. It is a process by which we are progressing, we are moving, ongoing. There's an ongoing movement toward this concept of being a holy vessel or a holy temple as we are now a dwelling place for the Spirit of Christ. It talks about a progression here. We are, it, is, it is a continual, ongoing spiritual maturity that is taking place. How does that happen? How do you grow continually? By growing in the lordship of Jesus. I mean, who of us can honestly say, you know, um, 10 years ago, uh, I am what I am today. I hope you're not saying that. I haven't made any progress. I hope you look back at your life and recognize and realize that where you were 
even maybe several weeks ago in your commitment understanding of what it meant to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I hope you've grown from that to a deeper, more mature, more fuller, more meaningful aspect about his lordship in your life. It's going to take more than just this. And it's going to take more than just this. It's going to take a commitment where I am continually moving and progressing into the likeness of Christ by yielding to the lordship of Christ on a daily basis, day to day in my life. I think there are a lot of people that I talked to over the decades of being in ministry who want just God just to zap them and to change them. I don't know of anybody where that's happened. It should be a steady, gradual progression of moving toward the likeness of Jesus. A consistency. Notice Ephesians 6.10. How does that happen? Notice the word Lord again. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How, how, how do you make Christ the Lord of your life? Not in and of your own strength. It's got it's to come from a dependence and a strength greater than your own. Because I don't care how much discipline you yourself muster up, how many habits you yourself implement into your life, you cannot grow without the dependence and the supernatural infusion of the power of God in your life. It takes a strength greater than your own. And hence, I think that is the reason why there are so many people that walk around in defeat. Notice the passage in, in Matthew chapter 1. We see where Joseph is, uh, is confronted with this, with this horrific news. And I can't imagine Joseph as he's being confronted with the news of his betrothed, his, his fiancée. But uh, Mary, after having the encounter with Gabriel, at some point has to tell Joseph, her, her fiancée, the, the man of her dreams, the man that she loves, the one that she has committed to and, and expecting to and wanting to be not only his wife but the mother of his children. And, and so Mary has to at some point go to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, you're not going to believe this, but uh, I'm pregnant. How devastating do you think Joseph was when he heard those words? Joseph is a man like you and I are, and, and uh, he's human. And he said, well, how is this possible? Who is the father of this child? Well, you're not going to believe it, Joseph, but an angel, Gabriel, came and he visited me, and he told me that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow me, and that which is inside of me is going to be supernaturally infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is going to be Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he probably looked at her and go, right, right. Would you have believed it? Seriously, would you have believed that? The Bible says that Joseph, being a just man, didn't want to stone her, which was his right, to publicly embarrass her, which was his right, decided that he would divorce her quietly. And the Bible says that while he was considering these things, he fell asleep, and in a dream, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And in that dream, the angel spoke to him and said, Do not be afraid, because that which is inside of the womb of your betrothed named Mary has been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Jesus. And following that dream, notice the obedience of Joseph. 
Verse 24, Matthew 1, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. How consistent was Joseph to the commandment of the Lord? Was it partial obedience, or did he follow the Lord all the way through? Somebody asked me the other day, so well, whatever happened to Joseph? We don't have any record of, of, of him ever again in the New Testament. I don't know. That's speculation. No one really knows. And if someone tells you they know for sure, uh, they don't. But what we do know of this man and his faith is that when the Lord came to him and he said, hey, Joseph, don't be afraid. Trust the Lord. Here's what I want you to do. What was his response to God? unquestioned obedience to the Lord. I think you and I need to offer to the Lord an obedience, a commitment that is unwavering. A commitment that's not what I call a a fair weather type of commitment, a commitment that we might call something that's convenient, a commitment that is totally sold out, that no matter what God asks, whenever he asks, wherever he leads, we're willing to go, we're willing to give, and we're willing to do on a consistent basis. The fact is that for most of us, consistency is not probably what it ought to be, and I'm convinced it could probably be a little bit better than what it is. If we would rely on a power that's greater than our own, a power that comes from the Lord himself, who will infuse in us what we need as we depend upon him to move us and to progress us and to grow us into spiritual maturity. And so here we have this opportunity for us then to grow in the lordship of Jesus. By saying, be Lord of my life, but by taking that which we confess and bringing it down into a reality where we are seeking to live it out on a day-to-day basis. You know, it kind of, it kind of troubles me sometimes that somebody's, sometimes people's faith is really kind of like a Sunday faith. It's not a Monday through Saturday thing. It's something we pick up on Sunday morning and we come to church and we don't seek to live it out Monday through Saturday. And the world calls those kind of people what? What's the word? Starts with an H. Hypocrites. And I think they're rightly so to call us hypocrites. For to confess Jesus as our Savior and to commit to him the leadership and the lordship of our lives and not follow through on that on a consistent basis, even when it's not convenient, is hypocrisy in our speech, is it not? So we must offer to him, offer him unquestioned commitment, even when it's not convenient. The R stands for resolve. There's an aspect in which we must then resolve to follow his will. In other words, you're never going to really make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life unless you know his will and are committed to following his will because the reality is that you have a will. You have a little you inside of you that is called self, and self has a will, and that self and his will will rise against the Lord's will every time. And so we must follow the will of the Lord. 
if we are to make him the Lord of our lives. In order to do that, we must understand what his will is and be committed then to following out the purposes of his will on a continual basis. Notice, there is one Lord. If he is to be Lord, his will is to be Lord in our lives. His purpose is to be our purpose. His desires are to be our desires. His objectives are to be our objectives. His vision for our life is to be our vision for our lives. And we are to follow that and to pursue that with all of the passion that we possibly can as we seek to make him the Lord of our lives. And to do that, we can't get ahead of him and we can't lag behind him. We must have what Galatians says, we must keep in step with the spirit or the will of God for our lives. To go as he says go and to not go when he says not go, to keep in step with that which he commands us to do. Notice in the passage it says, therefore, Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Would you like to be a prisoner of the Lord? Paul is not saying I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. He said, I am a prisoner of the Lord. Why is he a prisoner of the Lord? Because he's submitting to the will of the Lord. And the will of the Lord is, in fact, for him to be a prisoner of Rome so that he can accomplish the will of God. I think sometimes one of the reasons why we have a hard time with the will of God is because the will of God takes us to places of suffering. Anybody in here like to suffer? Anybody? You just crave suffering? You're masochistic? And you love suffering? Sometimes God calls us to hard places. Sometimes God asks for hard things. Sometimes God's will is to take away. There are times when he adds. There are times when he blesses. But there are times he leads us to difficult places. And the Apostle Paul was willingly embraced the will of God in this place because he knew it advanced the kingdom of God. We see in chapter 5, I'm sorry, um, Chapter uh, 11, chapter 3, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that God has a purpose. What is God's purpose? It is what kind of purpose? It's an eternal purpose. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes the purposes that I have for my own life are not eternal. They're very temporary, and they're very temporal, and they're very carnal. They're very, they're very tangible, aren't they? How about you? You relate to that? The will and the purpose of God is about eternity. It's about spiritual things and spiritual dimension. Chapter 5, verse 8 through 10 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Interesting, he talks about in this text that there was a past tense in which we once were walking in darkness. This is pre-conversion. But post-conversion now, you are light in the Lord. You are now. This is a present tense to the people that he's writing to. You once in the past tense were this, but now in the present tense you are this. You are children in the light. You're no longer walking in darkness. And the aspect of darkness meaning that you were disobedient to the Lord and not interested in the will of God, but now you're children of the light, and not only do you possess the light and understanding of the will of God, but now you're interested in living out and fulfilling the will of God. You were once opposed to the will of God, and now you are willing to walk into the word of God, into the will of God. There's a, there's, there's a, a difference now between those of us who are followers of Christ 
And he talks about that we must discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word discern is not what you might think. It's a word in which we think, well, I need to discern the will of God. That's not what it means here. The word discern here is a word that means proof. It means proven. It means that we prove that we are children of the light. We give evidence that we are children of the light by the way that we live. And the way that we live proves that we are children of the light and that we no longer walk in darkness. So by the very choices that we make in living as children of the light inside of the purpose and the will of God for our lives, we give evidence to the world that we actually are who we claim to be. And then he says in verse 17, chapter 5, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish. You only have so much time to live this life in this life. Make good use of the time that God has given you. Don't waste a single millisecond of your life in wasteful things, but understand what the will of the, of the Lord is so that in understanding the will of the Lord, you can make the most of your life, the most of your time in progressing into the likeness of Christ for the eternal purposes that God intends for your life from the very beginning in which he conceptualized and conceived you in your mother's womb. Interesting. That therefore we must resolve then to follow this beautiful purpose that God has for our lives by giving evidence through that intentional fellowship that we are in fact children of the light so that we can then understand and then do that which God has called us and purposed to do through us and in us. I'm thinking of a, the angels who were out in the field watching their flock by night says they were out there by night they were in darkness i think that's a a metaphor for uh, their spiritual condition they were in darkness don't try to over spiritualize some things but they were in the darkness they had not heard they did not know that the messiah had been born boom out of nowhere an angel appears and the angel says behold i bring you good tidings great joy which will be for all the people for unto you this day is born a child in a town called Bethlehem. Go and worship him. How did they respond to the glorious news of the birth of their Messiah? Recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, when the angels went away from them into the heaven, and the shepherds said one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them according to this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Skipping down to verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Did the shepherds follow the intent and the purpose for which they received this visitation? And the angel pierced the darkness and revealed to them that the Messiah was born. Would you have been one of the shepherds to say, you know what, I think I'm just going to stay behind and watch the sheep you guys go? Would you have gone or would you have stayed? You see, it was important that these shepherds understand that if they were to leave their livestock there unattended, sheep are pretty stupid animals, and they're liable to do anything to themselves. 
And to leave sheep unattended meant that these sheep more than likely would wind up hurting themselves, if not a loss of profit for those who owned the sheep. And I can not imagine a single shepherd staying behind, awaiting the news of those who would go and investigate the Christ child. Can you? I can't. All of us have a little manger scene. You got one of those? How many shepherds do you have around the manger scene? How many? Two? Maybe three? Imagine there were more than that. I can imagine more than that. And they left their flock unattended, willing to follow the will of God for their lives at any cost to discover the greatest joy they could have ever discovered, the birth of the Messiah. So they resolved to follow the will of God. And lastly, the D stands for devoted. It's interesting that we see the devotion that must be for those of us who claim Jesus Christ to be Lord of our lives. It requires a devotion, a wholehearted devotion. Didn't Jesus say that the greatest commandment was to what? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, right? Devotion is required to make Jesus Lord of your life, to love him with an unconditional, everlasting love. The Bible says in chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, therefore, he says, a prisoner of the Lord. Why would Paul again be willing to be a prisoner of the Lord? Why would he be willing to suffer? Because his love for God and his love for his Lord is greater than his love for his own life. I mean... One of the reasons why we have a hard time with our devotion to the Lord is because many times we are more devoted to the things of this world than the things of his world. And I think the reason why we have that struggle is because the things that we love of this world are more tangible and seem more realistic, if not more personal, than the things in the next world or the things that pertain to the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 22, it says, wives submit to the Lord. Let's talk about wives submitting to the Lord as Christmas time. Guys, what do you say about that? Let's, let's hammer on that for the next 30 minutes, and well, then we go out and, and really have a great Christmas. That's not why I brought this passage up. So you can be at ease, ladies. All right? But what I want to say is this, submit to the Lord. You see, you're not going to have the kind of marriage that God intended for you to have if you're not submitting to the lordship of Christ, husband or wife. If a husband's love for for the Lord isn't greater than his love for his wife, you're not going to have a very good marriage. If the wife's devotion and submission to the Lord isn't what it needs to be, where Christ is being lord of her life, she's not going to have a great marriage. If the parents are not in submission to the lordship of Christ, they're not going to be great parents. If children are not submitting to the lordship of Christ, you're not going to have a good family. It's required to, in a church, for all of us as individual members of the church to be in submission to the Lord, to have and to experience the church that is one under the leadership of the Lord. And if any time you and I are not devoted more to his will and submitting to his will rather than our own or someone else's, there's going to be nothing but chaos and confusion and disruption 
and disharmony. Ephesians 5.22 says, submit to the Lord. But notice, skip down to 6.4. It says, fathers, here's a word to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't keep pestering them so that they get angry. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Skip down to 6.24. It says, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. Now, I'm gonna, by, because of time, I'm going to make this a very quick application. If you take a look at these words, discipline, instruction, and incorruptible love, that is what is required for us to yield a complete devotion to the Lord. Submission, yes. Discipline as well. Who of us in here likes to be disciplined? Anybody in here like that? Do you like it? I <laughs> don't. Have you ever been taken out behind the woodshed? Have you? My dad used to wear out my rear end with that belt. I think I've told you that before. I can remember still to this day the sound of that belt coming through those loops. You know what I'm talking about? How many can attest to testify to that? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Man, that's a sound you'll never forget because you know something's coming. You know, sometimes in order for Christ to be the Lord of my life, he's going to have to discipline us. And we may, while we may not like it, our Heavenly Father has to do that or we're not legitimate children. Or to those of us who are legitimate, there is discipline. It's called consequences. And how I used to hate that conversation, my dad would sit me down and said, I love you, I love you. This is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. I'd go, no, it's not. You know what I'm talking about? And yet it does with the Father. The word instruction is an interesting word, isn't it? There are times if we are to understand and to know and to do the will of the Lord, we must not only have discipline, but we must have instruction. And if we are to be devoted to the will of the Lord, we must have a hunger to understand and to know what the word of the Lord says to us who are his people. And yet today I find less and less hunger for God's word than in any other time in 36 years of ministry. And then lastly, incorruptible love. That really needs no explanation, does it? A love that's without defilement, a love that is without corruption, a love that loves the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, where he is preeminent and where your love for him is greater than any other love, a love that is pure and a love that is righteous. And we go to the wise men, don't we, for this in the Christmas story. I know the wise men were not there at the birth of Christ. I know. That's why in my manger scene at my house, we have the, the manger scene here with the shepherds and, you know, Mary and Joseph and all that, and the, and, and the wise men are way over here. They're on their way. <laughs> okay? I get it. But they're still a part of the story of Jesus. And I'm convinced the reason why they got there late is because they got there as quick as they could. All right? I mean, it took them a while to see the star announcing the birth of Christ to get from where they were to where Jesus was. It was a long journey. 
And I'm sure they traveled with haste as quickly as they could, but they get there. And notice what happens in Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, notice, and have come to do what? To worship him. You can't worship what you don't love. And I'm convinced they loved him even before they knew him. Or should I say experienced him personally. Herod said, hey guys, let me go consult with my Bible scholars back here and I'll come let you know where he was. I'm sure the wise guys were probably floored that uh, this Herod dude didn't know where the king of the Jews had been born. He comes back with the information they need and he says, when you find him, come back and let me know so I too can go and worship him. And of course, we know that was a lie. And after that encounter, notice it says, drop down to verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and mirth. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's interesting here, it says that they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts. What was the greatest gift you think they gave him of the three? I'm convinced the greatest gift they gave him is not described here in words. The greatest gift came from the heart, a heart that was devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And it was because of that transformation that took place in their hearts that they then gave him their gifts. I'm convinced it starts in here and moves out here. And so as we close, here's the important question as we come to an end. What do I need to do today for Christ to be Lord? Maybe there's some of us in here that need to place our faith and trust in Jesus and commit to not only him being our savior, but to committing our life to him and saying, you take over, you be the Lord of my life. It's a commitment where you say, you know what, Jesus, I want you to take the steering wheel. I want you to sit in the driver's seat. I want you to dictate and determine where I go. I not only want to say that I want you to be Lord, I'm going to yield total and complete control of my life over to you. And I'm convinced unless you do that, you've not been saved. For salvation is simply more than just trusting him as your savior. It's committing to him the leadership and the lordship of your life. In your own and in your own strength, you cannot do that. But isn't it great to know that it isn't dependent upon you and me, that once we pray that prayer, that we have to make that a reality in our lives. We can turn to him, and his strength becomes our strength. His death becomes our death. His victory becomes our victory. And then through that and what he's done, as we stand on his righteousness, we're able then to achieve that which he has called us to become. Like him. And as we think about Christmas... And this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a lowly manger, in a stable, in a small, insignificant town called Bethlehem. He came to be Lord of your life.
And for those of us who know him, the question is, is he Lord of every area of your life? I think the answer to that question is pretty plain. He's not. Or how could he be? You know who you are, and I know who I am. And it's a day-to-day struggle, a day-to-day commitment. It's a moment-by-moment journey to making him the Lord of every aspect of our life. Let's pray. This morning, following up on our series, The Power of One, I want you all to think about something with me. Six years ago, Pastor had the opportunity to meet with a young man and begin to develop a relationship with him. As that young man came to know Jesus Christ, the Savior, and began to let him have lordship in his life, a change took place, a change that was known by his family. And this morning, we get the opportunity to baptize Skye Sky is the sixth person that has come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord out of that one opportunity. Do you all understand the power of one? When we reach one, God multiplies that and moves it in great and exponential ways. If you're part of Sky's family and you're here this morning to celebrate his baptism, would you all stand? This is my buddy Sky. Sky, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior? And do you want him to be your boss? Yes. Because that decision this morning is my awesome privilege to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. Race to walk in newness of life.